Thanks, Highland. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, welcome to you especially. Glad you guys are with us today, as Spence said earlier. Uh, we are in the book of Zechariah now, preaching-wise, as a church, and have been for a few months. We're about a little over halfway through, and we'll be in it through June, I believe, is our uh, last day is June 25, so we're um, kind of getting there. Uh, Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet, if you're new to the Bible or this portion of uh, the Bible. Zechariah is one of the uh, 12 minor prophets, we call them, because minor because they're smaller than the major prophets, just being longer books. Um, minor is not an insignificant thing or less significant than major, it just means shorter. Uh, but he's also a return prophet, meaning uh, he prophesied as Israel was returning from Babylonian exile. So that's the context, is that God's people have been separated from him because of their sin, and God is graciously calling them back to himself. And so he's prophesying in light of that. So in context with that, kind of on the front end, but during and also on the back end of that, he's speaking God's truth kind of over that situation. And so theologically then, it's a very rich book. Uh, It's very complicated because it's very apocalyptic and symbolic, uh, but it also means a lot to us because we too are separated from God as sinners. And this is how it uh, kind of fast-forwards ahead uh, to our story, but also kind of just speaks to all of human beings' story throughout all of history. They're a microcosm of the human experience because they're in their sin separated from God and returning by grace. And that's the gospel that it's looking ahead to, kind of just in context, and it says this too, but just the whole context, the historical and literary and theological context of the book, just sort of being at the end of the Old Testament as well right before Jesus comes, uh, in a way, just a few pages from the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, tells us that this is about Christ, and it's about God and his just relentless characteristic uh, of returning sinners to himself and his uh, pursuit in love of, of lost people. So to put it in just a, a slide here, in summary, basically what uh, Zechariah is, there's a lot to say about Zechariah, but what is Zechariah? It's a series of apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles or just kind of true statements or promises about Jesus Christ and other New Testament realities from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in 520 BC. So with that said, let's read from Zechariah 9 today. Uh, Zechariah 9, 1 to 17. It's the whole chapter if you want to turn there in Bibles you have or on your phone apps or this will be on screen. But let's read it expecting to find Jesus Christ here and go from there. So Zechariah Zechariah 9, 1-17. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and is resting in its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your, against your sons, O Greece, and will wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. All right, so a couple of sections here today, at least two sections I want to primarily look at uh, and break it down kind of around the what and the how. So this first section, uh, as you uh, probably noticed, the first section through verse 8 is basically a list of uh, God's judgment on enemies. So uh, other nations that uh, literally surrounded Israel as they were returning to the land and if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, other books of the Old Testament too, that are kind of the historical counterparts, uh, contemporaries to Zechariah, you know that they were threatened. Israel was threatened in its rebuilding process as it was seeking to rebuild the city and the wall and the temple. They were threatened by different nations in different ways. And so God is speaking through Zechariah and other prophets of the day to these nations, pronouncing judgment upon them for their threats um, and kind of speaking that in the context of having just great love, a jealous love, he said, remember, a jealous love for his people. And so jealous love goes to, to battle. Jealous love fights. Jealous love cares. Non-jealous love is passive, if it's even a form of love at all. But jealous, jealous love takes notice of threats uh, against the one that um, the person has the love for. And so in this case, God has that kind of love. So the passage then begins with these kinds of statements, these, these oracles. It's an oracle of the Lord, basically meaning a truth statement of sorts, a prophecy of the Lord against the enemies of Israel and these particular nations. It's a common theme then, too, in the prophets. If you are uh, new to this book especially, but if it's not, uh, just be reminded of this and remember this as you keep reading it just throughout your life. That a common theme in the prophets and elsewhere in the Bible and the Old Testament is that God has this kind of love for his people and fights for them when they're oppressed and when they're otherwise enslaved. It is a repeated characteristic. And even in Zechariah, we've seen this come up a lot, how God is showing his character. He's expressing the fact that this is not just happening to his people, but he says, I see it. I see you into your distress, and I care, and I'm coming to your rescue. Within Zechariah, it's repeated to undergird its truthfulness and its importance, and it's also a theme that we see outside of this book as well. God cares. It's a cycle. People get in trouble because of their sin. They're cast out of God's presence because of their sin. And God cannot dwell in sin and they're judged because of it. But God stays in his love for his people. He stays committed to them. And he kind of affirms, kind of like a marriage vow. He's kind of reaffirming vows or like a, 
a vow renewal ceremony that some couples do. It's kind of like renewing vows over and over and over again, promising faithfulness and expressions of love to them as even as they, to borrow from Hosea and the language he uses about Israel's sin, as they whore themselves out in their sin. That's the picture we get in, in the Old Testament is sinners are like a prostitute and God is like a faithful husband that does not divorce his wife even after she prostitutes herself out to other peoples and other husbands, other men. God is that faithful, and we are that not faithful. We are that sinful. That's the extremes. God is love, we are not. God has loved us, we have not loved him. We have loved ourselves and other sins, but God stays relentlessly faithful. That's the message of the Bible. It's the message that kind of undergirds what's going on here in Zechariah 9. So now when we talk about this idea, though, of judgment on enemies, because physical nations are mentioned here, right? So Philistia, Gaza, which is a larger province uh, around Philistia, uh, but also um, other types of towns like Tyre and Sidon and, and other nations that are surrounding Israel. When we talk about the why is this here, why is this passage here, not just historically, but, but theologically, and what does this mean for us, and how they help tell the greater story of Christ, We've got to back up and ask and kind of understand the general idea as it relates to God. God is fighting. This is the theme. God is fighting and destroying enemies. We can back up and at least affirm that. Just leave the details for now. When we back up and we ask what's going on here, God is fighting and destroying and just addressing the enemies of his people. And he's addressing oppression. In Christ then, this is, and this is the big question as we move ahead to the New Testament, in Christ, how does this theme find fulfillment? This is a prophetic book. Like the whole Testament is kind of like a, a big prophecy in one ways with many prophecies that make up this one big prophecy. How does this get us ahead to Christ? In Christ, how does it reach its goal? Now what the Bible says about this is and shows in many different kinds of ways is that Christ is the destroyer of greater kinds of enemies. There is a progression from the physical to the spiritual in terms of how we understand enemies even though it's always been spiritually defined in one sense. So Christ is the destroyer of greater enemies than Philistia, greater enemies than the Goliath that used to live there and threaten the people of Israel as a giant. He's, he's, a, he's a greater destroyer of, and destroyer of greater enemies than the Egyptians and then Tyre and Sidon and all these, all these enemies physically that are threatening God's people. So things like sin. Christ came to destroy what keeps us from God truly, which is not a geographical distance, but a spiritual thing. He came to destroy and address death and Satan and hard hearts and hell. In John 8, in fact, Jesus says, Jesus answered the Pharisees, I think, who were talking to him at that point. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he's saying this to a people who are enslaved to Roman rule in the day. And who had been, their forefathers, who, that that they're kind of living in light of, they look past and say, well, we were enslaved physically to the Egyptians and other types of people, the Babylonians. Jesus is saying, here's what truly enslaves you. Here's what truly oppresses you. This is the true injustice. This is the true problem. When you commit a sin, you are enslaved to that sin, meaning that sin is your master. It rules over you. And that's a problem. And what's, what's insinuated here then is looking back with Zechariah 9 language is that God sees that problem and he sets out to address it. Right? God's not okay with that. He loves sinners. He loves his people. And what Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is basically by defining the problem, 
he hints at the solution. Jesus came for these types of purposes. So verses like this, and there are many in the New Testament, when Jesus talks in slave language, he helps tie this all together in terms of why, why the Bible talks in this capacity in the Old Testament, how we read Zechariah 9. So like Israel was enslaved to physical nations in the Old Testament, all of us are enslaved to spiritual nations and in need of rescue. When the New Testament talks about Christians experiencing an exodus from sin, if you know the story of the exodus in the Old Testament, when the, when the New Testament talks about Christians experiencing this exodus, this release, this deliverance, this liberation from sin, it assumes then that the Egyptians in the Old Testament were there, types of sin and a spiritual enemy. So when we read it back, and this is what the New Testament does, it reads these things back into the Old and saying, now when we read it as Christians, we read it differently. Because Christ is kind of like this, this veil uh, that, that, is, that is pulled up, or at least he pulls the veil up himself when he comes into the world. We look back, we read the stories, and we read them differently in a Christocentric manner now. So what this is saying then is, as you really step back and see that there's different kinds of enemies in the Bible, is that not all enemies are created equal. Not all enemies, biblically speaking, God speaking, we have a lot of enemies or problems in life. They're not all created equal. Some are more or bigger and in more of a need of being addressed than, than other things. If I, if I had two threats in my day, one was I have a bad headache and the other was someone wants to kill me, the latter one would be a bigger problem. I, I could easily, more easily address the former with Excedrin or something. They're asleep. The latter maybe not so much. You know, the latter would be a bigger issue. It's, it's, so we do this all the time. In fact, you could say like our days sometimes are filled with organizing our problems. We have 20 problems, and this is the biggest one, so we're probably going to take that first and try to deal with that first if we can. And so sometimes we think this way about our lives on physical levels, uh, and, and God does too. So it shouldn't be a shock to us when we see that the Bible gives a hierarchy of sorts to enemies and to problems, the biggest of which at the top of that totem pole is sin, death, Satan, hard hearts, hell, just the fact that we're not where God is. And God sets out, Christ does, to address those types of, of enemies. So as a way to help us see this in Zechariah 9 and to practice this a bit, to see how it plays out there, I, I rewrote this passage in spiritual language, the first part of this passage, exchanging the names of the nations for the names of the problems that truly face us and truly enslave us, the things that Jesus came in the spirit of Zechariah 9 to truly address. And so I want to read this. This is, uh, and, I, and I encourage you to read it this way as, I, as we are going to right now, but as you do this and other passages like it throughout your life, because one, it's, it's true. Two, uh, it, it's, it'll mean more to you than if you were to otherwise just not do it. The, because the theme of God destroying enemies is for you and me. That, that is a theme that's for us, just not in the same way it was for Israel. You probably didn't wake up this morning and think, well, yeah, this is Philistia problem, you know, or something, or Gaza is my issue. Like, no one did. We, I, we've probably never done that once in our life. And that's not the point. It's not trying to say that. That's not the, the meaning of this passage is to say, let me tell you that your, your enemy is Gaza uh, or Greece. The, the, the point is that, that this is a prophecy. And it's physically, using physical Old Testament language to hint at spiritual, new spiritual realities. So this, then, is the true, prophetic, forward-looking goal of this passage in Christ. Let's read this now. 
The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of sin, and death is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all of his chosen people, and on Satan also, who always lurks closely by. Religion and a type of righteousness that comes through the law, though they are very wise. But behold, the Lord will strip them of their possessions and strike down their power on the sea, and they shall be devoured by fire. Our shame shall see it and shall be afraid. Guilt, too, and shall writhe in anguish. Fear also, because its hopes are confounded. The prince of the power of the air, the enemy of our souls, shall perish. Our old lives shall be uninhabited. And I will cut off pride. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And I will purify people for myself. I shall take the worst of people and end their exile from me. Then I will encamp around my church as a guard, so that sin shall not march to and fro freely. No spiritual oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. That's the what in this passage. And that's good news. Now we move on to the how. Because the, the big question is, we can read that, in that language, and still be confronted with the question, well, how? How's that going to happen? So the next piece, then, is, is uh, Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, which focuses primarily, at least in, in the first part, primarily, uh, and we'll just actually look at verse 9 primarily here, um, but primarily on this king who's going to come, who's mounted on a colt. So the how, how is God going to bring salvation? How is he going to save his people from this type of problem and oppression? The answer is verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's really important to understand. Everything we just talked about, the first part of that passage, it, it, this is not a sec second or separate oracle. This is, this is separated sometimes by a paragraph in our Bibles, but this is one thing that God is saying to Zechariah. So the way he's going to overcome Greece, or we could say Greece spiritually, is with this, this king right here. There's no break here for lunch. Zechariah is still speaking. So this is the how to, to the what. Rejoice, for your king is coming to you, and this is how you'll know it's him. You're going to see him humble and mounted on a donkey. So a lot of you are aware this is uh, a very direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is uh, mentioned, alluded to, quoted in the New Testament multiple occasions, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think synoptics, actually. I'm not sure if John does, but, um, but alluded to. And it's quoted there in reference to Jesus actually doing this. So he, so he actually rides into the city on the Sunday before his death, so about five days before his crucifixion. This is when Christians celebrate uh, certain traditions, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, when Jesus literally rides into the city, uh, it, when he enters Jerusalem intending to die, but he enters the city in kind of this victorious um, celebration. So Jesus then seeking to himself fulfill this prophecy. And so it's amazing that that happens at all. But what the Gospels indicate, especially in Matthew, is that Jesus seeks to fulfill this prophecy himself. He knows the Bible. He's the Son of God. He knows the prophecies. Seeking to fulfill this himself, this is, what, this is what happens. Matthew 21, 
Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, so Jesus and his disciples to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is Matthew's commentary. This took place to fulfill Zechariah 9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. And so at the beginning of what we call Holy Week, Jesus' initial procession into the city, ultimately to die for our sins, this is, what, this is what he does. It's fascinating because sometimes he just does things and the gospel writers say, oh, this happened to fulfill prophecy. But here, Jesus is saying, go into the city and find a donkey and a colt. Bring them both to me because I need to fulfill Zechariah 9. Is that fascinating that he's doing this? Like he's, and he's able to do it. He's taking someone else's colt. You know, so he's saying, just tell them the Lord needs it. It's almost like a Jedi mind trick, you know, and they'll be like, oh, okay, you can have the cult kind of thing. And so, and they do, and they, and, they, and they get it, and they bring it back, and he rides into the city, humble, mounted on the donkey, and uh, the city's in an uproar in a good way. They're, they're celebrating, they're saying Hosanna, uh, which means Lord save, and, and they're expecting big things. They're laying down palm branches. He rides in, um, and, and Holy Week begins, but... But see, that's the rub. And if you know the story, you know it's coming. So this is kind of the rub prophetically, but also just theologically here with what Jesus does as he rides in and as he fulfills this passage. We could ask, how, how is he exactly fulfilling it? How is he going to address enemies? Because in the spirit of what we just talked about, about Old Testament physical enemies pointing to New Testament spiritual enemies, sin, Jesus makes it very clear that the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 is God destroying sin. And so actually, Zechariah 9 itself helps us read the first part of that passage in the way we just did. And so especially when you bring in Matthew 21, when we look at what Jesus does here, when what he does right after it, uh, it helps resolve some of that tension, uh, if there was that in, in the first place. Because when Jesus came into the city, if you guys know the story, when Jesus came into that city, what did he do right away? Did he rally troops to himself and go and overthrow Roman occupation and oppression? Not in the slightest. What did he do? He talked about the kingdom of God, which is, which is a key phrase, not kingdom of Israel or any kind of other kingdom, but kingdom of God of which he would be king. And when you change the idea of kingdom, you change the idea of enemy. Kingdoms and enemies went together biblically. And so it's another kind of uh, argument for how things are changing here. So he taught about the kingdom. He prayed. He resisted and battled Satan. He butted heads with religious people. He talked about the temple in, in almost a derogatory kind of way, especially what the people were doing to it. So he confronted religious people. He battled Satan. He, he had supper with his disciples and talked about the forgiveness of sins. He talked about his impending death and subsequent resurrection. He talked about love. He washed his disciples' feet. And then he orchestrated his own arrest and trial and gave himself over to be crucified, fighting the greatest battle for us that ever has been and ever will be fought, period. That's what he did from, from Sunday night to, to Friday morning, into Sunday when he was resurrected. That's what he did that last week. So let me be very, very clear if it wasn't already. Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9 
Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9, not by physically battling the Roman Empire, which was oppressing the Jews in that day, but by spiritually battling our sins. It's crystal clear. With Zechariah 9's help and Jesus' help with how he teaches and what he does in Matthew 21, Jesus is saying, this is how I'm going to fulfill the prophecy. Not by physically dealing with your physical enemies, but by spiritually dealing with your spiritual enemies, which are bigger enemies. So 1 Timothy 1.15 then says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So question we can, and I think should, just pause and ask here at this point. We talk about a hierarchy, an ordering of our problems and our enemies in life. Is what do you place over sin? Let's just say sin is right here. What do you tend to place over sin as a bigger enemy or problem in your life? And I'm talking belief-wise, but also just functionally. What do you expect God to deal with and to destroy more than your sin? What do you tend to put up here when, when sin in your eyes is down here when it should be like this? What, what do you tend to, what do we tend to, how do we tend to order things that are misordered, disordered in reference to how the Bible talks about it? Are you angry with God for not dealing with certain physical problems when he's dealt with all of your spiritual problems forever? When you ask for prayer, what's the primary thing you ask for? Primary. There's lots of great things we can pray for. What's the primary thing? Does it have to do with forgiveness of sins? For the lost to be saved? For closeness to God? For spiritual remedies to spiritual problems? What do we fist pump when we think about God destroying it? Is it ultimately the things the Bible says we should fist pump and say yes to? Or is it we kind of put those down here and put something else up here over it? For Israel, there was widespread disillusionment, a misreading of the prophets, the whole Old Testament, and an expectation for Roman upheaval. So if you know the story, there was great disillusionment. Jesus walks into the city on that colt. You guys remember this? And he gets off the the colt, and look, it says in one of the Gospels, he looks around the city and then realized, oh, it's kind of late, and then he left the city and went back out to Bethpage. It's like the biggest anticlimactic moment of the whole book. You know, it's like he's entering the city, fulfilling the prophets, riding in victoriously, being a king, entering the city, drawing close to the temple, the center of God's dwelling place. And he gets off the colt and looks around. It says he looks around and realizing it's kind of late, I just walked out. With his actions, he's saying, not about the Romans. Stop it. Stop thinking your problem is the Romans. This is why he challenges, I think, the religious leaders of the day. Have you read the Bible? Don't you know? Are you Israel's teachers and you don't know these things? He says to Nicodemus in John 3, haven't you read? How have you misordered this on such a, they're not on the same level. They address the Romans and say, oh, and then I'll go and deal with your sins as well. You know, there are ways he addresses physical problems, but they're down here. And they point to this one, which is addressing our greater, one of, our greater problem of sin. 
And so for Israel, there is this great disillusionment, an absolute blindness to personal sin. And the same threat faces us. And I'll speak to those of you who are Christians today primarily, though it's true for, for all, all people. The same threat faces us because these are spiritual Jews. These are spiritual people. These are Bible readers who are missing the point. The same threat faces us even as spiritual people, even as Christians. How we define our biggest problem will dictate whether or not we get to Jesus or some other Savior. How we define our biggest problem will dictate it. You know, if, if we prayed for healing from cancer and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to heal you from cancer, but I will heal you of your sin, what would you say? What would you think? Would you be disappointed? Or what if he said, I have healed you in answer to that prayer. I have healed you of all of your diseases. Right here, this disease. And cancer will never have you because I own the keys of death and Hades. And I will unlock that door for you one day. In fact, I already have. Believe in me. What if that was his response? Is that enough of a gospel for you? Is that enough of a gospel for you? That's the question that this poses. Zechariah 9, 11, going back to how the passage reads, God says, as for you also, look at this statement, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Because of my blood, I will covenant, I will have a relationship with you, and I will set prisoners free. What kind of liberation is that? Even back here in Zechariah 9, there's a progression. Remember John 8, we, we just read. Everyone who commits a sin is a prisoner or a slave to that sin. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, hours before his death, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's connecting the dots perfectly for us. This is liberation. This is what we need. This is what God ultimately cares about. And he cares about a lot. This is the new type of liberation bought with blood. That last, one of those last songs we sang talked about this. A liberation purchased with the blood of God's Son. And it has much more to do with liberation from sin and death than corrupt governments and handcuffs and cancers and headaches and tough days at work and actual prison cells. Because Ephesians 6 says the battle is not against flesh and blood. Your and my biggest problem is not people that you, you don't get along with. It's not people that want to kill you, even. It's not people that vehemently dis disagree with you, but rather uh, sin that keeps us from him. So a few things here. There are implications for all of this um, that, and I have four things, there's probably a lot more, uh, but four things. First, uh, it is believe in Jesus and him crucified. Believe in Jesus and his gospel. Drink it in. Uh, that this passage talks about wine uh, being, it's, it's a picture of the future, this New Testament era where people will be kind of like they're being drunk on wine, they'll be drunk on God's grace. And they'll, they'll be so provided for that they'll be eating uh, till they're full and, and they'll have all the provisions that they need. In the New Testament, uh, the, it's interesting the gospel is likened, in Jesus' blood, to new wine. 
a lot. It's, it's uh, in Ephesians uh, 4, I think it is, uh, somewhere in Ephesians, it talks about uh, don't get drunk on wine, uh, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Kind of like it's saying be drunk on the Spirit. Be drunk on salvation. Take it in. So we talk about believing then in, in the gospel. I mean, note here in Zechariah 9 that what's the solution? There's this problem of threat. What's the latter part of the passage saying? How does Jesus fulfill it? What's the problem? God's solution is saying, look for a king. Look for a king. Behold, it's not about us. It's not about law. There's no mention of the commandments, but a blood-purchased covenant. So that it's by grace we're saved, not by what we do. And so this is the invitation for all of us, Christian or not. We have to believe and cherish well the gospel. That's the invitation of Zechariah 9. Look to the one who rode on the city, rode into the city, humble, gentle. See, he wasn't a king who was seeking to punish, but that's what the law did. But rather establishing a new covenant that would be a gentle covenant, gentle towards sinners. So that God now would relate to us and face us based on grace. Based on him saying, I'll take care of your sin, consider you perfect by covering you with my son's blood because he died in your place now. I will take care of your guilt and fear and shame. So the salvation in Zechariah 9 is saying, look for this king. And that's, that's the invitation for us. Look for Jesus. Read your Bibles. How does he enter the city? Is that enough of a gospel for us? We have to ask. Jesus riding in to die. That's the New Testament. Believe, repent from your old life, turn, lay down all your ambitions, um, religious ones, to strive to him and be more recognized before him based on moral effort and just receive his work for you. Like Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. Or Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Or somewhere in Isaiah, it says that, that God will, will show up and serve and work for you. All you have to do is wait for him. God doesn't wait for us to be good. The Bible says we are to wait for him. And what do waiters do? We wait for something else to act, right? We wait for an event. We wait for someone to show up. The Bible, even the Old Testament, is full of this language. We wait we're silent, and we're still. And we all those three things before the cross. If you're not a Christian yet today, that's the invitation, especially for you, but for Christians as well. Come back to the cross or come for the first time. Be still. Don't have a word. Look at how much God jealously loved you on that cross and slayed the greatest of your enemies. Do you believe it today? That's the first thing. The second thing is order your problems in the right biblical order. This isn't saying that lesser problems are not problems. It's not saying you should feel bad about praying about headaches. It's not the point. The point is order them the right way. You know, if when asked about what the biggest problem in the world is, if we don't say my heart or my sin, we have a huge theological issue. Huge. That will greatly affect our joy, greatly affect the way we pray, the way the Bible instructs us to actually pray. It'll affect others' lives because we'll probably evangelize wrong. We'll try to change the world in a wrong way, or a disordered way at least. 
and how much we'll be involved in church. We, we just won't simply get to Christ if we disorder things. And so I think this is a call for us to repent from having passion for causes, but being lukewarm on the actual gospel. Do you have passion for causes, but are you lukewarm on the fact that the Son of God bled out for six hours on a cross for you 2,000 years ago? Yeah, it's kind of boring, right? That has to be our cause. You know, regardless of how we feel about it on a given day, God is saying we have to let the Bible dictate for us, whether we feel it or not, dictate for us what our true problems are. So we can say, God, I don't feel that necessarily, but by faith, I'm going to believe it's true. And I have a lot of problems. We can pray about all of them, bring all of them to God, and maybe he'll heal physically, maybe he won't, but we're guaranteed that he will heal spiritually. Guaranteed. If you ask Jesus to take your sin away, it's a guarantee. Just like in his ministry, Jesus didn't heal everyone physically. He passed up people. He didn't heal everyone physically. In fact, sometimes people were lowered. Remember that guy lowered down from the roof and he's looking for physical healing from his legs, the paralytic? Friends lower him down. What's the first thing Jesus does? He forgives him of his sins, right? Oh, don't worry, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the, the, you can just hear the hamster in the wheel start to spin, you know? You're like... That's, oh, that's great. I know I should think that's great, but I kind of want the physical healing too. Right? That's why they were there. But Jesus knows the greater thing. He knows the greater gift. He knows the greater solution, the greater grace to give. And he gives it primarily first. But then he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, speaking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, rise up, take your mat, and go home. So, so you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So, in other words, to point to the fact that I heal spiritually, get up, take your mat, and go home. Forgiveness of sins, bigger, more important, more beautiful, more good, more amazing issue than the physical. Though the physical is pretty great too. But Jesus clearly orders them. Jesus doesn't heal everyone physically. And what happens after... Um, Jesus rises from the dead, and at Pentecost happens, people preach the gospel, the church is born. You know, after Jesus is alive and the Spirit comes, the thing, that, the thing that really happens is people preach. They talk about Jesus being alive, and they call people to faith. There's not a lot of physical healings. Even in Acts 3, James and, or, uh, John and Peter, or, yeah, John and Peter, at the temple court, see that cripple, and he asks for money. And Peter and John say, well, we don't have money, but what we have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And so they heal the guy. But right after that, what happens? A crowd is gathered, as you might expect. They just saw a miracle happen. What does Peter stand up and do? Does he heal one more person? He heals this many people, zero more people, and he preaches the gospel. Basically saying with his words and implied in his actions, What's more important is that you hear about the gospel because that'll save you from hell. An eternal state of being crippled and moneyless, what you need is to be forgiven of all your wrongdoings. And so we see the story go on in the book of Acts. So it's the same for us. How are we living our lives? How are we prioritizing things or ordering things? What does ministry look like? Are we doing the physical? Are we caring for the poor? But are we emphasizing all the more preaching to the spiritual poor? 
which is everyone. And saying, in Christ, God will lavish the riches, money word, riches of his grace on you, like Ephesians 1 talks about. Like Jesus ordered them, you know, so do we and so should we. So we have to, to do this. Again, for the sake of our joy, prayers, evangelistic focus, involvement in the church, and just getting to Christ. If there's a physical cause, that's a great, maybe it's a great thing, but if that's the main thing, it's very possible we won't get to Christ through it. That it's just a good thing to do. So keep it underneath the sovereign rule of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross in the empty tomb. It has to fall subservient to that, maybe to point to it or flow from it, but keep it down here uh, where it belongs. And so we live and so operate as a church community too, which a lot of you are, are, are aware of. All right, third thing is bring your anxieties to God. So what I mean by this, and I, and I say this through this kind of grace, if your biggest problem is taken care of and you know it, it helps you deal with the lesser problems of life in stride. To pray for them, but to trust God through suffering and to move on with your life by faith. This is why in general, I know there are exceptions, but in general, a Christian who knows this, who's dying from his or her sins, is generally going to be a happier person than someone who's dying physically and who is not saved, who has no hope of eternal life, who doesn't believe in the love of God, doesn't have that love that covers all of sin and grants all hopes. This is how anxiety flees. If you know your biggest problem, if you truly believe that it's sin and death and separation from God, and you know that it's perfectly dealt with, it helps you be less anxious about the things that shouldn't make us that anxious anymore because they actually are lesser. When this happens, that's when depression, anxiety, and all kinds of those types of inner tumultuous things uh, arise. And we wrestle with that. God's not healing it. What's happening? You know, if, if you have a physical problem, you pray for it. I've done this a lot in my life. I have a chronic illness. Uh, I have Crohn's disease, if you guys didn't know that. I prayed a lot for God to take it away. He never has. There have been times that shook me, uh, but it doesn't shake me anymore because I know he's taken away my spiritual Crohn's. I truly believe that, and it gives me much more joy than any type of physical deliverance ever has and ever will. I know that. So I can kind of ride through by faith. I can ride through the hard suffering days and see God's goodness, even in suffering, and not have it shaken. You know, and, I, and I can pray, Spence and I pray for healing for you guys every week. And write those on the cards. We love praying for physical healing for you. But this is my prayer. So, I mean, take it or leave it. This is my prayer uh, for you. Is I, I pray for the physical healing. What I pray for, and, and if it happens, that you would see that it's a demonstration of what happened there on the cross, where he spiritually healed you forever. That's my first prayer. My second prayer is, if you should tarry, God, if you shouldn't heal, that you would be sufficient in your grace. That your simple love for lost sinners, shown, and that's what the Bible says, how do we know God's love for us? When he gave us his son to die. That's how much. He said, I'll send my son to die for these people. That's how much I love them. That will be, that's my second prayer. That will be enough for me and for you guys whenever you suffer on any level. Uh, that's, those are both great prayers, but they both, I think, prioritize the right things and the right ways we bring these things to God. So bring your anxieties to God, and then last, uh, kill sin by knowing that God has killed it. I'm not going to talk much about this today for the sake of time, 
Uh, what I mean by this, though, is go back to the first part of Zechariah 9. In the sight of the cross, our fear, shame, guilt, pride, old lives, and hard hearts either run for the hills or are flat out destroyed. Sin, too, is judged, disarmed, and thrown into a bottomless pit. That's what Zechariah 9 is saying, and that actually was what Jesus came to do. Sin has no more power or authority in our lives. And so when, when the New Testament talks about killing sin or repenting, it doesn't primarily say try harder. It says kill it because God has killed it. Kill it because God has killed it. Be humble because God has killed your pride. And so it's an act of faith primarily. Do you believe that or not? It is, I think, the primary question we should ask ourselves as Christians as we seek to live uh, a life that's more free of sin. It's not try harder. It's do you believe that God has actually killed your sin and is killing it day to day as you sin and as we find victory that he has authority over it. And so now by faith we do as well. It's no longer our master. That's what Romans 6 says. Remember John 8? If you, if you commit a sin, you're a slave to it. Because of Jesus dying on that cross and rising again and disarming all powers, rulers, and authorities, taking away punishment for it, Romans says a different New Testament book after the cross says that sin will no longer be your enslaver, your master. But it's because of grace, he says that. It's because you're under grace now, not under the law. It's because you're under grace, God's grace, that sin is no longer your, your master. So, so believe the gospel, order your problems the right biblical order, bring anxiety, your anxieties and all of that to God, and kill sin with, with a Holy Spirit-driven zeal that's grounded in the fact that God has fought all your battles for you, and you really believe that. So that it's by grace you're saved, and it's by grace that you do good. Let's pray. God, thank you for Zechariah 9. Thank you for the gospel in it, uh, the, the explicit prophecy, but also the implicit ones as well, about sending our pride and guilt and shame uh, to the hills, running for their lives. The prophecy about our shame writhing uh, in anguish uh, because of the great work you're going to do through your son. That's the gospel. And that's true for us right now in this very room. Fear, shame, guilt, pride, old lives, a religious system that was bent more on what we do for you versus what you do for us. The Old Testament system in general. All of those things are being cast into the sea, according to Zechariah 9. They're being addressed. They're being threatened back by God, who has jealous love for sinners. But God, all these things find their home in the idea, again, that we are saved by grace, not by works. And so God, just give us freedom in that today. Uh, re release us from the masquerade from the tirelessness of religion, the, the tyranny of, of the self. Free us from all of that and help us to, to rest in the simple fact that God has loved us through his son, died for our sins, rode into that city in a condescended manner on a donkey to show that he would go all the way to the cross in a condescended, lowering himself manner to serve us. Sinners who don't deserve it, but who are deeply, deeply, deeply loved by the creator of the universe. In Christ's name we pray, amen.